All right, look with me in Matthew 18. We're continuing our series, beginning in verse 1. Matthew writes, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, Jesus, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fashioned around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes." And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, your word does stand forever. And that is what we stand on. We stand on the truth of your word this morning. And we look to you to accomplish in our lives what you desire to accomplish through your word. That we would be drawn near to you. That we would see you more clearly. That we would love you more. That we would desire more to follow in the steps of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, take these words and by the working of your spirit, bring transformation that we might begin today the process of change because we have met with you. Glorify your name in your word today and in your people. In Christ's name, amen. Now, Jesus, as we see in chapter 18, Jesus has gathered his disciples one last time in Capernaum. Capernaum was the home base for Jesus, and most likely they were based in Peter's home. That's where Peter lived. And They get back to Capernaum after they have been on the Mount Transfiguration. They get back to Capernaum, and 
it is there where they will take off for their final journey to Jerusalem. The Passover is about a month away, and it is that time to make the trek to Jerusalem, but it's also the time where Christ will be crucified. And so Jesus, in this last setting, is about a month away from suffering, crucifixion, dying on the cross, and being raised from the dead. And, and Jesus tells his disciples, Matthew tells us in this recording, just a few verses earlier in chapter 17, verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now that delivery, that isn't, it's not referring to Judas betraying Jesus. It's not referring to the Jewish leaders turning Jesus over. That delivery, as you study, as you look into the the Greek and the history of this, that delivery is God the Father delivering Christ over to crucifixion on our behalf. That is what Jesus is predicting. He is saying, within a month, my Father will deliver me to death to pay for the sins of humanity, to bear upon His body the wrath and judgment and punishment of God as a propitiation to make propitiation, to to satisfy God's wrath that we might be forgiven, that our debt might be paid, that our penalty might be paid so that we can be reconciled to God, that we might be forgiven. And so Jesus predicts this, and now they are getting ready. They're in Capernaum. They're getting ready to go to Jerusalem. Now, a lot has happened prior to getting to this place in Capernaum before they head off to Jerusalem. Jesus has gathered his disciples, yes, one last time, and the Passover is a month away. Um, But here in Matthew 18 is Jesus' fourth discourse. Now, discourse would simply be teaching block. And so Matthew, Matthew, he crafts his gospel in teaching blocks, in discourses. So the the first discourse, if you remember, was chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And we learned on the Sermon on the Mount, it describes what a true disciple of Christ is. And then in chapter 10, the second discourse is when Jesus is calling his disciples, naming who those disciples are, and then not only setting them apart, for the mission that he has called them to, the mission that is Christ's mission that they will take over, but he empowers them to go on that mission. And then in the third discourse are the parables in chapter 13, the parables that describe what the opposition to Jesus is like and who those that are opposing him are and what will happen to them. And now in chapter 18, we get to this fourth discourse, and this fourth discourse has a theme. 
The entire chapter has a theme. Chapter 18 is not just disjointed comments that Matthew is recording, but chapter 18 has a theme. This fourth teaching block impresses upon the disciple the importance of community life together. In other words, church life. Living together in the body of Christ as those who have been redeemed. In this fourth teaching block, Jesus is impressing upon his disciples the importance of this new community that's been formed. And he's been preparing them from the very beginning to this point. And he's now putting into their minds and their hearts this teaching block, this discourse about community life, because he knows in a month he won't be among them. Not physically. He will be crucified. And he will rise again from the dead, but he will ascend to heaven. And so he is, he is preparing them. He has been training them. This is, this is all about living life together so that the mission of the gospel can go forward. And the, the main point of this entire chapter is Treat one another the way you would treat Christ. Treat one another in the way you treat Christ. That's community life. In the beginning of 18, there's an abrupt switch. The disciples who have just been told that Jesus is leaving them. He is going to die. He is going to be crucified. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. And then Jesus tells them just at the end of chapter 17, let me remind you of who you are. You are sons of the king. You belong in my kingdom. You belong to me. Do you get that? And we have this Wonderful story of God's provision in the, the story of the, the, the fish who provides a coin. And so Jesus is, is giving them these serious, serious insights and teachings. And then we get to verse 1 of chapter 18. Now, I remember a time when one of my children... I was talking to them about a very serious topic. They were about eight years old, and I was trying to get them to understand the seriousness of what they had done. Of, and it was particularly about lying. And I was trying to explain to them the, the importance and the critical nature of telling the truth. And so we were talking for about 15 minutes. It was in the morning, and I was, I was sitting with them, and I, I was thinking, I'm, I'm just, I, I want to parent them well and do this, uh, you know, do this well. And so I'm making sure they're really getting it. And at the end, I, I just say to this child, now, now, do you understand? And this child shakes his head and then says, can I have Honey Nut Cheerios for breakfast? And it's like, that's, that's all you thought about? 
We've just spent a half hour talking about the truth. And all you want is a bowl of cereal. That's, that's all you can think about. And, that, and think about that. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? After all he's told them, their interest is, what's in it for me? Where do I fit into this grand plan? Now, the question of who the greatest is in the kingdom of heaven is a recurrent theme among the disciples. In, in just a few chapters, chapter 20, uh, James and John's mom go to Jesus and say, Hey, tell me that you will let my sons, one, sit on your right hand and sit on your left hand. So I, I kind of know where James and John got their, got their ambition. Mom's up there promoting them. And in effect, what these men are asking is, who, who here among us is the top disciple? Because Jesus, Jesus had made it clear earlier that he was going to die. He wasn't going to be around. So there is some level of understanding that these guys are wondering, okay, if Jesus is not around, who's going to step in? Someone's got to lead this band. And... I'm probably the guy. And you can see, the, you can understand the wheels turning in their head, you know. If he's dead and someone's got to lead this man, and especially, understand, they, they still were not grasping a spiritual kingdom. They were still thinking of a physical kingdom, a kingdom that was going to rule over the Roman Empire, a kingdom that was going to destroy the Roman Empire, a kingdom that was going to rule over the religious leaders of the day, a kingdom that, that they knew they had power because Jesus had given them power. And so that's what they're thinking. And so Jesus, as he wonderfully does, responds to their question. And he turns their whole world upside down. In verse 2, and calling him to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' response turns their entire understanding of greatness upside down. He, he calls this child over. And he uses this child as a vivid illustration of what it means to truly represent and be in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus is, this is his response. Mark tells us that they were arguing with one another about who the greatest was. So in Matthew, we read this. They just come and ask Jesus. And along the way, in Mark's version, they are arguing with one another. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? And they're all jockeying for position. And Mark tells us that when Jesus heard them arguing, he looks over to them and says, what are you arguing about? And all Jesus heard were crickets. The disciples did not say a word. 
So we have these two interesting versions, but the point is Jesus is getting to what is going on in these men's hearts. And, and his response to their arguing startles them. He, he doesn't address who the greatest in the kingdom is, but who's in the kingdom at all. That, that's what he's after. These guys are asking about who, who of us should be on the all-star team. And Jesus is saying, you haven't quite maybe made the team yet. These disciples assumed they were in the kingdom and wondered only about where they stood in in rank. And Jesus questions them in a way that shakes their confidence. Are they even in the kingdom? Because here's the criteria. Here's here's the standard. Here's here's the bar that you need to, to exceed to get into the kingdom of heaven. You can't do anything. In fact, you have to be as a child. Oh, and that has so much to it. Jesus' response turns their world of, of greatness, their idea of greatness, upside down. Because what he is telling them is a child, particularly in this ancient culture, a child has no status, no standing, no title, is always needy, and in this ancient world is of no value except for their ability to work and bring food or money into the family. The child has no status, no value. That's the the ancient Near Eastern world. In, In Rome, children were at, at great risk. Young children, like the little boy that, that Jesus calls to himself, were at great, great risk. A, 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 birth, a birth father could simply decide not to keep his child. That child is, is not as good-looking as I wanted it to be. That child has, has some birthmarks on it. That child looks like it's going to be lame. That child has a defect. That child has no meaning to me. That child just gets thrown out on the street. That's the value of this child. This child's not going to bring anything to this family. Get rid of this child. That's the status of a child at Roman times, in this culture. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, that's who you must be like. Because prior to Christ transforming you through saving grace, you are lame, and you are lost, and you are defective, and you are not pretty. You are ugly with sin. And you are in need of one who can rescue you. This vivid illustration grabs their attention. Jesus is calling for a radical departure from their culture. Look at this child, he says. Look at this child. This child, this is the culture of the kingdom of 
So let's look at quickly the, the three main points that Jesus makes in this. And the first one is childlike humility is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. Verses 3 and 4, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says to them, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now turn here does mean to change. We get the idea of repentance, but it's passive in the Greek. So, so it, its meaning is unless you are changed. In other words, there's an outside force, so to speak, changing you. God has to do a work in you first before you come in the kingdom of heaven. And in Christ's kingdom, the humble are the ones who are great. But it's not those who actively humble themselves who are great, but who recognize their status and their humility in who they are before God. He's not looking to those who are great and self-assertive. He's telling his disciples that it's, it's inappropriate to talk about greatness in the kingdom of heaven while there's still uncertainty about their status in the kingdom of heaven. First, he says, check. Are, are you genuinely born again? Do you truly believe in me? Have you put faith in me? you remember in John 6, Jesus is talking to this crowd of disciples. And back then, it wasn't only his 12 disciples, but many who said, I want to be a disciple of Christ. And they would attach themselves to Jesus. And so Jesus, knowing their hearts, John writes, makes a statement. And he says, if you want to be a follower of mine, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, he wasn't meaning literally eat him. He wasn't talking about cannibalism. He wasn't talking about roasting him over a fire and eating him. No, he he wasn't talking about drinking his blood. He was talking about the life of a Christian and imbibing, as we do in the Lord's Supper, in uniting with Christ, in his suffering, uniting with Christ in your followership. And it said that when he made that statement of how difficult it is to be a follower of Christ, what did Paul say? Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of heaven. He writes in Philippians, I want to know Christ and the power of his rising, sharing in his sufferings. And it says, when, when John writes that in chapter 6, and Jesus makes that statement, if you want to follow me, you have to eat my flesh, drink my blood. It said many left him. And so Jesus is doing that right here. He's just saying, listen, it takes childlike humility. It is necessary for childlike humility to see your status. I need Christ to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about being a child. Listen, Jesus is not saying that children are outstanding examples of humility. They are not. Or any other virtue, so to speak. That's, That's not what he's saying here. 
I mean, we know who our children are. Those wonderful little gifts that come to us at that moment of birth. Your wife is over on the bed just gasping for air and you're holding this baby. And you think, oh, precious and perfect until they get home. I heard one preacher call them vipers in diapers. And that's... (laughs) And the reality was not a parent in this room ever had to sit down with their child and say, okay, let me teach you how to sin. That's not what we do. No, no, no. no, no. They, they are experts. So when Jesus says, listen, humble yourself. If, unless you're like this child, he's not talking about their inward character. He's talking about their status. And childlike humility is recognizing who I am before God, that's what is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. We, we read about that in, in, in the Beatitudes. In chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That what you bring to the table, what you bring to your interaction with God, this transaction with God at salvation of being born again, what you bring, you have a contribution to make. And that contribution is your sin. You bring your sin. Christ brings his righteousness and his forgiveness and his cleansing. That is to be poor in spirit. That is to recognize. And Jesus Jesus lets them know he goes beyond this idea of literal children to the Christian community and our vulnerability as believers. That Jesus' true followers are our children who have received God's wonderful revelation, God's insight that was hidden, Matthew writes in chapter 11, from the wise and the intelligent. There are no great ones in the kingdom of heaven because no one no one who is great gets in only those who are poor in spirit and like the values that that Jesus established in the beatitudes this here this this statement about coming in like a child it's a pronouncement of grace for those who are so unworthy to enter the kingdom of god It's a pronouncement also of of condemnation on those who think themselves worthy but are truly not. We We must be children. It's not about striving to be humble but to accept our status before the Lord. Secondly, childlike humility is necessary for us to mutually care for one another. Verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. God, God deeply cares for his children. He has the greatest 
interest in how you are treated and how we treat one another. How we speak about one another. How we care for one another. How we think about one another. He begins with pastors. In 1 Peter 5, he charges pastors to shepherd the flock of God with tender care. Joyfully and willingly. He cares. God cares for his flock. And in the same manner that a pastor cares for the flock and that God cares for the flock, God wants you to care for one another in the same manner. And it takes an understanding of who we are. That there is no one who is greater than another in this family here. We're all standing on the same ground, level ground. We're no better. We have different roles. But that doesn't make us any different or any better. It just makes us role players. That's who we are. But we all stand before God. And so we are to care for one another. And that's what this chapter is about. As you will read on next week, as as John teaches on church discipline, the parable of the lost sheep, as this passage goes on, you will see it's all about community life together, how we treat one another. John MacArthur said this, it is essential to see that this chapter teaches the church as a group of spiritually imperfect children how to get along with each other. It is no exaggeration to say that this is the single greatest discourse our Lord ever gave on life among the redeemed people in his church. That's the importance of Matthew 18. And he begins by saying, listen, the way you treat one another is the way you treat Jesus at every moment. You get angry at somebody, that's how you're treating Jesus. You ignore somebody, that's how you're treating Jesus. You gossip about somebody, that's how you're treating Jesus. You make a sacrifice for someone, that's how you're treating Jesus. You're tender towards somebody, that's how you're treating Jesus. You're generous towards somebody, that's how you're treating Jesus. Every moment of every day. When we're interacting with each other, we are interacting with Christ. Christ in us, the hope of glory. We are united to Christ. And he goes on to say, whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest. And then he goes on, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. In other words, welcoming. We're not all best friends in this room. I'm sure there's a lot of you that wouldn't want to be best friends with me. And that's okay. I don't want to be best friends with you either. So that's not true. But we're not going to be best friends with each other all the time. But we do want to welcome one another into our lives. And there are so many ways in which we do that. Those standing outside when we come in and greet us, that they're welcoming us. 
a visitor who comes in here and you take and make the effort to go and introduce yourself and ask them who they are, that's what you're doing. You're welcoming them. In the name of Christ, you are welcoming Christ. When you have me over for dinner and give me exactly what I want, you are welcoming me in the name of the Lord. Jesus has a very serious point here. How we treat one another is how we are treating him. How we welcome one another, receive one another, is how we receive him. And sometimes we are put in a position to receive those who don't fit with us. Or maybe somebody who we're having a bit of a struggle with relationally. That's why humility is so important. We don't welcome one another based on status in this world, not because they're a doctor or they're, they're a car salesman or they're a, a lawyer or a politician or a professional athlete or a pastor or somebody who works just in a lumberyard. We, everybody is the same. If you treat these little ones differently... Jesus goes on to say this. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, you've got to see the context. The context isn't just you've caused them any sin. The context is here not welcoming, not receiving. Do you get that? If you treat these little ones differently, and we're all little ones, whether it's a new believer, a growing believer, an old believer, a disabled believer, it doesn't matter. We're all little ones. And if you treat these little ones differently, Jesus is saying, By your treatment, you can cause them to stumble. You can cause them to sin. And better that you would take your own life by tying a millstone around your neck and drowning yourself in horrific death of drowning than come under the judgment of God. This is vivid and sobering language and it indicates the seriousness of such an act of leading one of God's children astray. Now, it can be expanded. Those in our society today, those former pastors who have said, I've deconverted, I'm no longer a follower of Christ, or Christian leaders who have done that, they have caused many to stumble. And I believe they fit under the judgment of this verse, and rightly so. That's how serious this is to the Lord. And here, what are the disciples doing to one another by arguing who is the greatest? Are they tempting one another to sin? And separating themselves from one another because they're trying to establish who the greatest is. Jesus is warning them here. And he's warning us. And the warning is severe. Listen, none of us are perfect. 
And we need not be fearful that we are destined to have a millstone tied around our neck when our words or actions towards others are sinful at times. That, that is not what Jesus is saying. He is incredibly patient. Jesus is incredibly kind and forgiving towards each one of us. He's always at work in us through his spirit. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Philippians 2, for it is God who works it in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. He is, he is for you, but he is saying what we should fear is living in such a manner that habitually causes others to stumble, to sin, to separate, to not receive them. Listen, the opposite is what God is asked after here in Matthew 18. Instead, we're called to protect one another. We're called to care for one another, to treat one another with equal love and care, and, and not based on some worldly or cultural standard, but based on our status in Christ. That is how we are to treat one another, so that we do not damage their faith or shipwreck their faith. And finally, the third is childlike humility. Excuse me, childlike humility does what is necessary to fight sin. Jesus goes on to say, look, when these temptations come, this is how you are to respond. Woe, verse 7, to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Now, he he is beginning by saying the world is a dangerous place. We're confronted with temptation to turn away from God every day. We, are, we, we can be enticed by the pleasures of sin that are offered in our culture. We can be influenced by the world's false wisdom that leads us away from God. And Jesus warns us, be on guard against these temptations. Be on guard against the temptations from without, the world around you. But also be on guard about the temptations from within your own heart. Because the world is not the only temptation that you face. We can stumble because of our own choices. We can turn away from the light God has shown us because of our own desires. And place ourselves in the most tragic and horrific of eternal endings. Jesus warns them and says in verse 8, And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. Now, he's not talking about a literal cut off the hand, gouge out the eye, cut off the foot. But he uses this vivid illustration to see and to show us how radically we must address sin in our lives. Whatever sin that is, if you're given to anger, That just is an area where you're weak. You're quick to anger. Or you're given to pride. Or you're given to fear. Or you're given to anxiety and worry. Or you're given to selfishness or greed. We all have patterns in our lives where we are weak. If we are given to those areas, Jesus says, find a way to cut it off. What does that look like? I don't know what it looks like for each one of us. Because we're all different, made and created in the image of God, but uniquely different. But go get help. Ask someone to help you in this arena. Not radically dealing with sin affects us personally. But listen, brothers and sisters, your sin 
also affects the community around you. And that's why you'll see Jesus leading down in further into chapter 18, church discipline. Sin must be dealt with radically. That's our lifelong journey, our daily battle. And the only way we do that is through humility, recognizing who we are before Christ and also seeing who Christ is in us. Thanks be to God, we're not on our own. Our weaknesses are not insurmountable. Our sins are not unforgivable. Jesus does not give up on us. He will not let the enemy snatch us away from his grasp. He is preserving us. Even when we don't feel like we're being preserved. The world provides enough temptations. And as followers and members of this community, we must protect ourselves and one another's brothers and sisters. If someone goes astray, we must drop everything to try and bring them back. If someone gives in to sin, we must warn them and appeal to them. And if necessary, exercise church discipline for their restoration. If we're in conflict with one another, we must be willing to forgive. Otherwise, Jesus says at the end of Matthew 18, God will not forgive us. And that's what's so attractive about the church about the community of Christ. We pursue these things. We love one another. We care for one another. We protect one another. That's our application. That's how, that's how Grace Church functions. That's how Grace Church is called to function. And let us, let us keep that in mind, that as we walk in humility as a child, recognizing who we are before God, but all that God has done for us. Let us pursue seeing this community prosper and flourish because we're caring for one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for caring for us through your word, through your spirit, through ultimately your son's death and resurrection and ascension who now intercedes for us daily, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Lord, take these words, use them to encourage and exhort and transform your children who you so dearly love. In Christ's name, amen.